Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible, Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation this week, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So turn in the Bible to Revelation chapter 11 and parts of Daniel as we have a message entitled, Understanding the Plans of God. There's a strange story told about New Zealand stuntman Bobby Leach. In July of 1911, Leach went over Niagara Falls in a steel drum and lived to tell about it. Several years later, Bobby Leach slipped on an orange peel, badly fractured his leg, later died of complications from that fall. Now, I don't think the moral of the story is when it's your time to go, you go. That's too easy of a conclusion to come to. See, I think the moral of the story is that when Bobby Leach went over Niagara Falls, he was prepared. And when he slipped on an orange peel, he was careless and not looking where he was going. He had not prepared himself. I think careful preparation is essential to success. It's also true when it comes to your faith. What do you expect as a Christian? Do you expect that your faith will result in hardship, perhaps even persecution? Or do you expect that your faith will mean you become wealthy or at least very comfortable in this world? You see, if you think the first is likely, you're going to prepare yourself. And if you don't think so, you won't prepare yourself for the day of suffering. And when it comes, it will terrify your soul. Or let me ask a different question. Do you expect to be victorious in your endeavor to live faithfully in Christ, or do you expect to fail? Confidence comes not with the expectation that things are going to be easy, but with the expectation that they might be hard, but no matter how hard, God is going to sustain you. Preparation for hardship, expectation of success. See, we've come to Revelation chapter 11, which I must say is perhaps the most difficult chapter to interpret. It's an already difficult book, as you know. Perhaps it's not a difficult chapter to understand, but it's a very difficult chapter to interpret. What does it mean? Are we supposed to take it literally? And furthermore, how we understand this chapter really does set the stage for how we interpret the entire book. And for that reason, I have been given one full week to study this important chapter, Revelation chapter 11. But rather than simply seeing it as solving a puzzle, I hope that you will see that this chapter might mean something for us today. I think that the first readers might have been shocked by this chapter, because at the least, How I read this chapter, the seven churches who first heard this chapter being read came to realize that the battle to maintain their faith was going to be much tougher of a fight than they had ever anticipated. They might have been reminded of Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death. But on the other hand, they would also be reminded that all those who remained faithful would be assured that they would prevail. There is a resurrection from the dead and God wins. Revelation chapter 11 begins with John being given a measuring rod to measure the temple of God, and that's curious. Because at the time of the writing of this book, the temple had been burned down and it had now been a complete ruin for about 25 years. So was the entire city of Jerusalem. Then we're given some numbers, 1,260 days. Then we're told of two witnesses, witnesses who seem to have supernatural power to shut up the sky so that there will be no rain, power to turn water into blood, and subject the earth to plagues. And finally, they're killed, and after three and a half days, they're raised from the dead and taken up to heaven. 
See, our problem in reading this chapter is going to be what parts of this chapter are we going to take literally and what parts will we understand to be symbolic. And just so you know, in my reading of the various interpretations of this chapter, everyone takes some things literally and some things symbolically. See, the real disagreement is which part belongs to which camp. Sounds tough, doesn't it? And just so in the midst of the details we don't lose our way, let's keep asking the question, how would the original hearers have understood this? And what shall we make of it today? And I think this chapter should help us to anticipate whether our struggle for the faith is going to be hard or it's going to be easy, and whether we should expect to succeed or whether to fail. In short, this chapter will be both alarming and it's going to be very hopeful at the same time. So where do we start? Well, let me start by taking us back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Everyone without exception agrees that some of what's written in Revelation 11 is based on the book of Daniel. See, the book of Daniel is easily divided into two halves. The first half is historical, and the second half has the same kind of apocalyptic images that we also find in Revelation. And just like Revelation, Daniel begins in the present when he lives, and then he sees right down to the end of the world. So let's start with Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says that he saw his first vision in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, who was also the king who would later see Babylon fall to the Persian Empire. But in the first year of Belshazzar, that event was still in the future. And Daniel sees visions of four beasts, and with the passing of time, it becomes very clear what these four beasts represent. The first beast represents the Babylonian Empire. The second, the Medo-Persian Empire who conquered the Babylonians. Daniel lived to see that happen. The third beast represents the Greek Empire, and that was well beyond Daniel's lifetime. And finally, he sees a fourth beast, different than all the others. It's like no beast he's ever seen before. It's, It's terrifying. It has iron teeth. It has ten horns with another little horn growing out in the middle. It has the eyes of a man. Daniel wants to know about that final beast, even though he finds the image terrifying. You know, at first glance, this is clearly a reference to the unstoppable power of the Roman Empire. But without going into all the details, the fourth beast leads us to the end of the world. Daniel is fascinated at the ten horns on the beast's head and about the little horn that comes out of it and so forth. And in Daniel 9 verse 21, he says, As I looked... This horn made war on the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, that sounds like events leading to the end of the world. And just before the end of the world, this horn who comes up later, whoever he is, seems to win the war against the saints or the people of God until God himself intervenes. And with that, the present era or the present world comes to an end. But what's especially fascinating about Daniel 7 is that this final horn or this final ruler, well, let's listen to Daniel 7 verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, please keep that in mind. This ruler to come who decimates the people of God does so for a time, times, and half a time. And then the ancient of days, that is, God himself intervenes, and the kingdom of God comes into existence. 
Well, that's the end of Daniel's first vision, Daniel chapter 7. Now, we move now to Daniel chapter 8, and that vision happens in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so it's two years after Daniel's first vision. Again, without getting into too many of the details, Daniel sees the vision of a ram, which clearly represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he sees what he calls a male goat, which is clearly a picture of Alexander the Great destroying the Persian Empire. And then with amazing accuracy, well, let's let Daniel describe it in Daniel 8, verses 21 to 22. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And then Daniel describes one of these four kings that arise from the kingdom of Alexander. Daniel says this one will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. In other words, Daniel sees that a king who arises from Alexander's empire devastates the people of God or devastates the Jewish people. Now, please try to stay with me because this is so very important. We know from history that the Greek empire was divided into four and that one of the four was the Seleucid kingdom. Now, that Seleucid kingdom was headquartered in Syria and their king was named Antiochus. We know that Antiochus took a title. He called himself Epiphanes. Epiphanes simply means that he thought that he was a manifestation of God. I mean, he had no ego problems. Antiochus entered into Jerusalem. There he erected an altar to his god Zeus, and in the Jewish temple he sacrificed a pig, utterly desecrating the temple, and crucified numerous faithful Jews throughout Israel, and utterly desecrated both the temple and the people of God, utterly defeated Judaism until the Jews were able to mount a fierce counterattack and drive them out. Hope you're still with me because Daniel prophesies this desecrating of the Jewish temple will go on for 2,300 days, or a little over six years, and that is exactly what happened. And all of this, says Daniel, is leading to the end of the world. New episodes of the Truth and Life Today video series will be airing every week this month discussing issues of faith and Christian living stimulated through the questions of viewers and listeners across the country. This month we'll discuss worship, its importance, the keys to effective worship, and some of the worship challenges that face our churches today. We'll discuss the often hot topic of the roles of a man and woman in marriage based on Ephesians 5, the critical significance of the believer in sharing their faith, and much more. We're so excited that you're continuing to send in your questions. And if you haven't, and you'd like an issue discussed, well, you can send your questions through backtothebible.ca and click on Truth and Life today. And for more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, especially during our fiscal year-end campaign, visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. Daniel claimed to see his third vision in the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus. 
That would mean that his third vision happened some 12 years after the second one. Now, during this time, the Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians, as Daniel has predicted. Now, Daniel reports to have been studying the book of Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel was, of course, living in exile, and according to Jeremiah, the exile would last 70 years. So, might I interject here? Have you noticed the numbers in the book of Daniel? The first time we saw a number was in chapter 7, the very odd time, times and a half a time. We're going to come back to that. The second number was in chapter 8, where the number was 2,300 evenings and mornings. And indeed, that number is, as we have seen, not a symbolic number. It's a literal one. The third number is in chapter 9, 70 years. And again, it's a very literal number. It's not a symbolic one. See, we know that with certainty because the years of the exile really did last 70 years. Now, when Daniel sees that the exile will last 70 years, he goes to prayer. He confesses the sins of Israel and prays for God to keep his word. Then Daniel says that while he's in prayer, Gabriel the angel came to him and gave him a word about the future. I'm reading Daniel 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, these weeks are universally understood to refer to sevens or a seven-year period of time. And so, again, we have a number. Seventy-seven-year periods of time are in the future, which, you know, if you do the math, it's 490 years. And so the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that God has decreed 490 years to, among other things, to put an end to sin and to anoint the holy place. In other words, the kingdom of God is going to arrive in 490 years. So what does all that mean? Well, please stay with me. I am ever so slowly coming to a very significant conclusion. There's a point in all of this. Okay, let's go to the next two verses, Daniel 9, verses 25 to 26. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then after 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So let me cut to the chase quickly, but please listen closely. Seven weeks pass, then 62 weeks pass, and in all of that, 69 weeks. As we've seen, that means 69 seven-year periods of time, which makes 483 years. If the first year of restoring Jerusalem is calculated as the return of Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, that happened, by the way, in 445 B.C., and then you add to that 483 years, you actually come to the actual date, get this, of the crucifixion of Jesus. Yep, you heard me. And that, if you're not paying attention yet, is the year that Daniel says an anointed one or a Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, again, we have not symbolic numbers, but literal ones. What makes Daniel such a fascinating book is that he accurately predicted the fall of Babylon, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, then the fall of the Persians to the Greeks, and the rise of Alexander the Great. And then he predicts that Alexander is going to die suddenly. His empire is going to be divided into four. He predicts that one of the four kings will decimate the Jewish temple and the Jewish religion for some six years, but that the Jews will prevail. 
Then he predicts a coming of another empire that looks very much like the Roman Empire, but there are parts of this empire that are difficult to understand. Now, that's not enough. Daniel then reads from Jeremiah that the Jewish captivity is going to last 70 years. Then he predicts that when the exiles come back from captivity, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, and then 69 sevens are going to pass, 483 years, and then the Messiah will be cut off. Now, please notice, Daniel is full of allegorical figures, beasts that look like lions with eagle's wings and and bears and leopards and a huge, what I call a robo-beast, But each of these symbols represent real things. And then in the midst of the symbols, in the midst of graphic representations, we find out that there are a series of numbers, and the numbers aren't symbolic numbers at all. They're real numbers to be understood straight up as real events that are going to occur after a certain number of years. Okay, so far so good. Where are we going in all of this? Well, let's continue to read Daniel. I read the next section, chapter 9, verse 26b. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now stop and remember what we've read. Daniel predicted the rise of the Syrian king Antiochus and how he would destroy the Jewish temple and desecrate its sanctuary. And that happened in 167 B.C. Now he takes the reader way past that event to the end, he says, and we assume he means, well, the end of the world. Again, he talks about a prince to come who utterly destroys the sanctuary, that is, the temple. Now, I have to interrupt this train of thought and take you ahead to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And in verse 15, Matthew records Jesus as saying, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. And then Matthew interrupts the words of Jesus by inserting his own words into the text. Matthew says, let the reader understand. In other words, let the reader do a thorough research into Daniel if you're going to understand what Jesus is saying. So let me put all of this together. Some 40 years after Jesus used Daniel's words to describe what was going to happen, an abomination of desolation that looks like Antiochus desecrating the temple, that is, the Roman emperor Titus burned Jerusalem to the ground, mercilessly slaughtered the Jewish people, burned the temple to the ground as well. The Romans entered into the temple, they desecrated it, and took anything of value out as their own prize. Now, I hope you see the pattern. First, it was the Syrian king Antiochus who desecrated the temple. That was an abomination that causes desolation. Then when Jesus talked about the prophecy of Daniel, he indicates another abomination is on the way, which did in fact occur 40 years after Jesus spoke. Now, I hope that your head's not spinning yet. See, back in Daniel 9, this time verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for a half of the week. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, here's the $64 question. What is Daniel speaking about at the end of Daniel chapter 9? Now, we know he's already told us he's speaking about the end of the world. And so after Antiochus in 167 B.C., and after Titus in A.D. 70, Daniel mentions what we would now say a third desolation or an abomination yet to come. 
Please notice Daniel has said that 77s are decreed 490 years to bring in everlasting righteousness, which means to bring in the kingdom of God. And then he has 69 of those sevens, 483 years until Messiah is cut off. But what becomes of the last seven or the last seven-year period left over? When was that going to happen? Well, he doesn't say. The last seven is simply left dangling, and the reader is wondering what's going to happen. But even though he doesn't say when the last seven will happen, he has something to say about the last seven. He divides the last seven into two halves of three and a half years each, and then he says, for one half or for three and a half years, desolations are decreed. Now, I wonder if you remember chapter 7, where Daniel spoke of times and time and a half a time. And that, of course, means the same thing, three and a half years. So what does all of that mean? Well, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, which is where we're going, we are told that for 42 months, which is three and a half years, the holy city is going to be trampled down. And then in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, we are told of two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days, which is, yep, three and a half years. So however we understand Revelation 11, this chapter surely refers to the last seven of Daniel's prophecies. See, in traditional language, that's often been called the Great Tribulation, which is the time just before the end of the world, a time of desolations. What does that mean for us? Or what could that have meant for the seven churches of Revelation? So the answer has something to do with expectations. The church had to assume a great and horrible conflict with evil before Christ returned. Yes, they were to assume that the gospel would win men and women from every tribe and language, but they would also have to assume that a time is coming when the people of God would be utterly desecrated. They were to expect martyrs. They would expect to be trampled under. But they were also to expect the ruler of everlasting righteousness, the utter triumph of the Lamb. John, I know this was a particularly uh, difficult or challenging passage in Revelation chapter 11. What made it so uh, challenging for you? Well, I know that there are a great deal of differences of opinion on Revelation chapter 11. Plus, Ben, I actually know also that Revelation chapter 11 will really determine how we understand the rest of the book. So I've tried to take some extra time to really give us a feel for the background of it and also help people to understand where I'm coming from. Thanks so much, John. We're looking forward to the rest of the week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This is one of the most critical months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. June is our fiscal year end and will dictate many of the plans for ministry moving forward. This month, our goal is to raise $338,000, a lofty but reachable goal as we work together for a common purpose, teaching the Bible. One reason this goal is attainable is the special commitment of ministry friends to a $75,000 match campaign. Perhaps you'd consider a special gift this month that would make the most of this match campaign. Your gift of $100 would become $200, $500 become $1,000. Together, the goal will be achieved and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada sustained and increase in its impact. 
Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And remember, what you're investing in is quite simple. We teach the Bible.